Welcome to the Ur Life Podcast, where we share current stories that connect us to the earliest tales of prehistory called Ur Myths, stories buried in our subconscious. By telling our stories, we connect on a deeper level with ourselves and with others. Hi, my name is Dominic. I hope you can join me and maybe share your own story. My name is Dale Sheldrake, sometimes known as Dale Whale, and I am an artist. I am a uh, ADR supervisor or a supervising ADR editor. It's in the film business. It's post-production. Imagine the film gets shot on location, in studio, wherever. An editor, picture editor, puts all those pieces together. You now have the sound that is only the sound from the locations and sets where you were shooting. So now comes the sound department. Sound effects editors will build up all those worlds, all the atmospheres, sound effects, monsters, whatever it is, cars, you name it. There's music and dialogue. So those are the three parts of post sound, right? Effects, music, and dialogue. Dialogue is production dialogue. So all those recordings that were made when they were shooting and ADR, which is dialogue that you get after all of that has happened. I have a saying that a lot of actors have heard, which is H2O equals ADR. So if you are shooting a scene that involves water, if there's a storm being made or a storm happens for real, if you're on the water, if you're at the beach, if you're in the rain, in a swimming pool. So when we did Vikings and shows like that, that were very much based around water, there was a lot of ADR involved on the ship during a storm, all the lines are doing, we would redo all those lines. That would be myself and you know the actors usually one at a time in a studio watching their scenes. So in some countries, I'm known as a dubbing director to redo the lines in scenes, put back in the same emotional beats and context, but in a recording studio much after they have shot the scene. And I've been doing that for about 35 years. <laughs> I don't know if I need to describe what hell drivers are. Maybe I don't know what hell um, drivers are, so you better tell it's, me. Yes. They're, they're live car crash shows, okay. exhibitions that would travel from town to town. This was during the 30s and the 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s. They would travel around to local fairs and do these performances where they would crash cars and do stunts with cars, high-speed driving, two wheels, rolling them over, all that crazy stuff, which was stuff I loved when I was little. So there came a point early in my film career where I had a gap and I thought I'm going to make a little documentary about demolition derbies. And I went to a demolition derby to do some research and discovered that hell drivers still existed, which was a shock to me. So that was in 1991, somewhere around there. But I had this idea and I spoke to a producer, filmmaker, friend of mine, told him about this idea. I said, I want to make the be all end all hell drivers documentary. I want to have a whole history of it and all the old stunts. And he said, if I were you, I would concentrate on what you can shoot now because the chances of you finding any of this material that you talk about in a form that you can use is a million to one. Mm -hmm. And so I went completely the opposite direction and I began searching for (laughs) archival material. The thing was, I found it. I found a couple of the guys who were still alive, who had been big stars in the 30s. I got some archival footage from them. I interviewed them. And it took me a lot to get it to a point where it was usable. 
But I had started in film when it was on film. So I had all the splicers, I had all the gear. I would get all this old film, I'd repair it, prep it to be transferred to a digital format. I was connected with a guy who used to work for the National Film Board who had invented a process to restore damaged film. So when film gets really old, it curls and gets brittle, and he found a way to rehydrate film. He literally said, when you're going to transfer it to digital, open the can, lace it up, and go. It is going to begin to shrink back immediately. I can't even guarantee you how much you'll get. I, I only tell this story because it was so wild. Laced it up on the projector. We start running a third of the way through and it breaks. It is shrinking. It's yeah. literally shrinking as we look at it. And I ran in there, I spliced it back together, we laced it up again and we kept going. And we I don't know how many times it broke and I spliced it back together, but we got through the whole roll. That's the stuff that I committed myself to by choosing to try to find all this old archival footage. I'm really happy in the end that I did it because now it exists somewhere. It was often very depressing and felt self-defeating that it did take me so long. The irony is that ultimately the film ended up being, as far as percentage of material, it did end up being mostly stuff that I could shoot now. So basically, as Leonard had described to me, try to do this. That's what it ended up being in the end. But it still contains all of these historical vignettes and stars from the past. So the whole Hell Drivers thing for me, although it took 15 years and came with a lot of headache and heartache and sometimes regret, by the time I finished it, I was so proud of it. And now telling you about it makes me realize how much I actually learned. Yeah, because I'm getting a sense, of a great deal of pride because I'm the same way. Like it sometimes... It may not be a seller or it may not work in the marketplace, but you just feel that you've accomplished something that you're proud to show. Yeah, absolutely. And it's on Amazon, on Amazon Prime. Hell Drivers is there, which is also very satisfying. Oh, you so know? that's great. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, anybody that wants to know that history can know it. So how do I come to terms with my personal life and my artistic life? That's hard because I've had these artistic expressions or outlets, you know, drawing, music, writing, filmmaking. None of them are really my career, my job. They're all things I do as a pastime, but I've never really stopped doing any of them because I can't stop doing them. I can't not have a poem come into my head or, or a song lyric or a story idea or an image of a painting or read something in the paper and go, wow, that would make a cool documentary. So I can't always pursue those things. How do I reconcile that, right? How do I reconcile with want all of those things being in my head, but I still have to do my job and my yeah. family? Or, 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 or even more so is what happens, have you had really bad dry spells where nothing's working and uh, I'm going to shelve this, just not going to bother? Well, I mean, there's projects that I've given up on. Those are the okay. ones on the shelf, right? I've got art pieces I've started and haven't finished. And <laughs> there was a point in my mind where I thought, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I need to keep those viable because lately I've been saying to people, you know, like, 
I, I have so many things I need to do. I don't have time for a job. <laughs> I, I need to quit my job <laughs> so that I could work on all these other things that I have to do. Well, this is what I'm getting at. Like, you know, if the job gets in the way of some of your creativity, how do you, how do you reconcile that? For me, I reconcile it by putting some time into it okay. once in a while. As far as music, we kind of had a standing thing with the band. We would rehearse once a week. So sometimes you didn't want to go. Sometimes you weren't in the mood or you were tired or whatever. And it's like, oh, it's band night. I don't think I want to go. But you knew everybody else was going to show up. So you did. Yeah. And then you were glad you did. So you committed yourself to the time, even if it wasn't what you wanted to do. You know, there's a lot of art teachers in all mediums and disciplines that will say that's how you become an artist, right? You do it even when you don't want to do it. Yeah. How do you maintain that artistic life when you don't have time for it is, well, you, you got to commit some time whenever you can. I'll still be having lunch or something and something will come into my head and I'll start typing it into my phone or write it down or make a sketch. So it's always coming out. I mean, sometimes those little bits of pieces of paper, they hang around for a while and they become a part of something and sometimes two months later throw it away. The stuff still comes out. For me, I, I reconcile it with the idea that I'm never going to give up on art. Okay. I'm always going to be wanting to pursue art in the various disciplines that I enjoy. And I know I'm going to be doing that for the rest of my life whenever I can fit it in. Sometimes you can't make time for it, but it's going to come out of you. You come to terms with it by not stopping it. Don't yeah. make don't make efforts against your art. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I like that. Don't make effort against your art. The less limits we place on ourselves and treat this as, as an open book, uh, the better, right? And that's what you've been doing. You've been yeah. when you had a chance, you you dove in. There's one more thing I'd like to say, actually, which I think applies to me, but I know also applies to other artists. Is that now I'm more willing to accept that it's okay to explore something without feeling that it needs to end up perfect. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. in the past, I know a lot of things I would start, it would be like, okay, I want this to work out perfectly at the end. Yeah. Now I see that that might not be the best approach for art. Sometimes you just need to explore something for the sake of exploring it. I didn't really allow myself that time. You know, I think because I had limited time in the past, I'm only realizing this now, wow. Because I had more limited time in the past to work on things, you want every minute of that to be working towards something that is going to stay as a piece of the art and not yeah. something that makes you go, oh, crap, I wasted my time on that. But you need that crap You need that time. risk. You need time waste. You need to waste some time, right? Exactly, yeah. Like, you know, sometimes I think, oh, I want to do a painting with my eyes closed. You know, set up my palette so I know what my colors are, but not look at them. Just let the brush go down there and like, maybe blindfold myself, you know, and see what happens. That to me would be like a really good test of exploring Yeah, because yeah. it would mean that I'm removing the judgment of my eyes and my brain from what I'm doing. I guess that's the big benefit. Now I'm more willing to explore just to see what happens. You know, it can take a long time to, to learn to enjoy art for the sake of art. Thanks very much, Dale, for sharing, sharing your stories and your insights. Thank you very much, Dominic. I really enjoyed this because being on a podcast about art has made me feel like an artist. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Here's my reflection on Dale's story. It was a 15-year journey for him to make that movie. 
It was a long journey, and it reminded me of the ancient Greek tale of Odysseus. The Odyssey, if you like. And this was a 20-year tale of Odysseus returning back home. He had spent 10 years in the Trojan War, and then another 10 years just getting back home. And he had insurmountable odds to get back home. He was the sole survivor from a shipwreck, and then he spent about seven years on an island. And then he finally returns home to Penelope. And in addition to that, he has to eliminate or kill off some of the suitors. Here's the interesting thing, that in other stories in ancient Greece, tragedy also follows him because he is killed almost accidentally by his son. So, you know, when you listen to this story or when you, you see sort of the, the long, long journey, there's a bit of heaviness. Now, certainly you can take this in many directions. You can talk about the loyalty of Odysseus. You can talk about his commitment. But I wanted to share or shift perspectives here slightly. And the perspective I want to shift to is on the ancient Greek myth, Hermes. Now, Hermes was one of the 12 Olympian gods. He was the messenger of gods, the, the gods of commerce, the god of travel, the god of communication. He was also a bit of a trickster and wit. But what's interesting, in the Odyssey, he plays a crucial role. He warns Odysseus on a number of occasions. He helps him, aids him with the sirens and in the underworld. So he is almost like a co-creator with him. The other thing about Hermes is how in his early time, right off the bat, he was being mischievous. He stole Apollo's cattle, his prized cattle. Apollo was furious. He was incensed and he went looking who could possibly have stolen this and he was ready to kill the person who did it. And then he confronted Hermes when he found out that he had stole his cattle and Hermes turns around and shares a, his lyre. In other words, a stringed instrument that looks like a U-shaped harp. And as he plays it, Apollo immediately falls in love with it. He's so impressed, so enamored by it that he wants one for himself. And I share this because I think what's interesting with Hermes is how he injects this bit of humor, playfulness, creativity within all of this. And I couldn't help but think that Dale's story has a bit of this, has this mischievousness in it when he's told by his mentor that he should forget about looking for other film, right, other old film to use in the Hell Drivers, and instead just use current footage. And he does the opposite. And eventually, through all of this, he uses it in his filmmaking. And not only is he proud of it because he did that, but there's a certain sense of um, thumbing your nose at others, if you like, whatever metaphor you want to use, and this lightness is really what I like about Dale's story. It's at the core of being an artist. The other thing that's interesting about Hermes is he's a jack of all trades and probably a master of many. And for me, it's what Dale shared later on in his conversation with me, that not only was he in a band doing music, was writing, he was also in theater, because, you know, Dale was also part of the festival I ran, the Inspirato Festival, and he directed and he wrote plays there, but he was also actively involved in fine arts and drawing. So he had this cross-section of, of interests, and I just thought that what's useful for all of us to keep in mind, probably in our own journey, is that if we can look at how do we take out the heaviness 
that we have that's in front of us? How do we add in that Hermes touch with whatever we do? And I'll leave those parting words to think about for our next time. Do you have a story that touches on a bit of that Hermes aspect? Or do you have another Odysseus story that you'd like to share? Thank you for listening.